0: It's time to put on the brakes and pull into Purple Car Park, your stop for book reviews, author interviews, and thoughts about the act of reading in our super-digital, data-driven world. Hosted by Miss Purple Car herself, Christine Cavalier.
1: Welcome, everybody. It's Christine Cavalier from Purple Car Park. Today on our show, we have Dr. Richard Setterston. Dr. Setterston holds a PhD in human development and social policy from Northwestern University. Dr. Setterston is currently on the faculty of Oregon State University. Where he holds the chair of the Halle Ford Center for Healthy Children and Families. He is the author, along with writer Barbara Ray, of Not Quite Adults, Why Twenty Somethings Are Choosing A Slower Path to Adulthood, and Why It's Good For Everyone. Welcome, Doctor Setterson.
0: Thanks, Christine.
1: Also today, we have a young entrepreneur called David Spinks. Mr. Spinks is a founder of blog-dash.com, a service that focuses on blogger outreach, along with other projects like scrimnia.com and his own personal blog, What Spinks Sphinx.com. David is a founder and host of the Under 30 Professionals Group. The U30 Pro chat on Twitter on Thursday nights is a vibrant conversation for millennials, by millennials on topics that affect their lives. Welcome, Mr. Sphinx.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Let's explain very quickly what a Twitter chat is, David.
2: Sure. A Twitter chat is just gathering. Sometimes it's weekly, sometimes bi-weekly or monthly. Ours is once every week where people pretty much all gather on Twitter they all follow one hashtag. In our case, it's hashtag U30Pro. And you pretty much just have a discussion. We'll ask questions on a specific topic each week, and everyone answers and discusses it. If you go to meetup.com U30Pro, there's our meetup page everywhere there. So you can sign up for whatever city you're in. And yeah, we'll be doing a lot more in all different cities.
1: You welcome all professionals of all levels, I assume.
2: Yeah, we we encourage all professionals, young or old, or experienced or not experienced. Um, the idea is to bring in and have a really good discussion. So it's really valuable to have more experienced professionals in there to provide insight from their experience and to uh, just give advice wherever applicable. And they get a lot of value of it out of it too because they learn from young professionals about how often they like to uh, jump from job to job or how to apply for jobs, and they can just kind of get an idea of what young professionals are doing today.
1: Not Quite Adults by Richard Setterson and Barbara Ray, Why 20-somethings Are Choosing a Slower Path to Adulthood and Why It's Good for Everyone. This book basically goes over a lot of research and a lot of anecdotal stories from people in the field. Is it mostly from surveys?
0: That's right. So um, the MacArthur Foundation brought together, uh, well, about a dozen of us from different fields, sociology, psychology, economics, public policy, to kind of take a fresh look at what's happening in the period of life between 18 and 34, in a way they were so forward-thinking, um, there have been some big shakeups in this period of life, especially when it comes to things that we normally think about as traditional markers of adulthood, like leaving home, finishing school, finding work, getting married, having kids, right? Those are all kind of big sociological markers that matter a lot to the well-being of a society. So we analyzed about two dozen major national surveys, sometimes going back as long as 100 years, if you look at the census, for example. Um, And then we also draw on in-person interviews with about 500 young people in five different sites across the U.S. And the in-person interviews, the the anecdotes, as you say, uh, really help bring those stories to life.
1: And what would you say is the general temperature out there for the 20-somethings or the millennials?
0: Yeah. So, you know, this is exactly why we wanted to write this book. There was so much that seemed socially relevant here that, you know, we wanted to take some of our messages to the streets to kind of help young people, their parents, educators, policymakers kind of all understand what's going on and what to do about it. And, and one of the major factors for us was that there's so much negative conversation in the public about young people today, and yet so much of our research evidence really <laughs> runs counter to it. And, and so it was a major impetus to kind of say, here's an amazing amount of evidence that can really shatter so many of the assumptions that we're quick to make about young people today.
1: Right. And you talk in the book about swimmers and treaders. What's a swimmer and what's a treader?
0: A typical swimmer is a young person who's got, say, strong support of their parents. That's not just about money. I mean, it is about money to some degree, but it's especially about guidance and emotional support, good sense of their futures, really strategic decisions that are a good match to their skills and abilities. And they got a good sense of how to get from here to there. In contrast to the swimmers, the treaders are, you know, probably not the kind of kids who in an earlier era would have gone to college. They've heard that college is the way. They're not sure where it's all going or what they want to do. Maybe they're moving through lots of majors or switching institutions or going from a four-year to community college. Often these are first-generation college students who uh, who might have supportive parents, let's say, but whose parents really don't have the know-how about how to get into and make it through college. Right. Those are you know kids who are are treading hard, who say skipped college and are are working. I mean, very often these the kids who are treading are in really low-paying service work that comes with no benefits or that has really limited opportunities for moving up. I mean, they're having trouble making ends meet and getting through the the days, letting alone having enough to raise a family on, right? Right. These are the kinds of kids that we're really wanting to turn attention to to figure out what we can do to improve uh, the routes they're on.
1: And David, how did your own education work
2: out? Yeah, so for me, college was always something that I knew I was going to do. I definitely wasn't raised in a wealthy family, but we did okay. And my parents were definitely the types that were always extremely supportive and wanted me to succeed and wanted me to go to college and, you know, get a good job and do well in my career. So I went to college right after high school, did the four years, went to a state school. It was all pretty straightforward. When I got to college... You know, I really didn't know what I was what I was gonna do. And I, I know, Rick, you you spoke a little bit about how some students will just jump around from major to major, and they don't have a clear set of goals. I mean, in my experience, like no student, no young person really has a very clear understanding of like, all right, I need to do this and this and this mm-hmm. and this, and then I'll be happy. Right. I think everyone's kind of just figuring out their way as they go. Um, for some people, it clicks sooner than others. Um, there's some, like, I, I switched majors a couple times. I started off undeclared, then I went to poli sci, then I ended up in business, and I ended up sticking with business just without having any real idea of what I wanted to do with it. I know a lot of other friends or other students that ended up um, having to stay in college for an extra year or finished still not knowing what they want to do.
1: Dr. Setterson, Rick, you say it's why 20 somethings are choosing a slower path to adulthood. Do you really think it's a choice?
0: No, that, that's a great qu- question, Christine. No, for so many young people, of course, it's not a choice. I think the public in evaluating young people often assumes that you know the, the courses they're on are all just about the choices they're making. And if they're not doing well they've, well, they've simply made bad choices, right?
1: But David makes a really good point. Many of us did not finish on time because of a major switch here and there. And-
0: oh, yeah, exactly. And I think the main thing that David pointed to is also, uh, there are a couple of things that happen. One, We all eventually found our way. And so even if we start college unsure about where we're going, the critical thing is that young people have kind of permission to explore the things that they want to explore, to eventually find the things they feel passionate about and then lock into. This is a a kind of more general point that I've also been making about young people. I, I don't know why we expect young people to have their lives all together in these sort of neat, tidy packages, you know, to, to kind of know
1: college, right,
0: exactly. When the rest of us who are well outside this period uh, know that, you know, adult life ain't like that. Um, I mean, much of adult life is, is, is not neat and tidy. I think we do young people a disservice when we somehow expect them to have it all together. And so indeed the point is that we, we also need to find ways to, to kind of shape college environments, let's say, or shape work environments Uh, that that young people are in so that they also have uh, permission to explore those things. Uh, This is also the point about taking a longer course, that to the extent that young people can make really strategic decisions, that they have uh, time to explore, you know, what what works for them, what they're passionate about, in the long haul, those are good things because they end up, you know, hooking into relationships and hooking into work that's meaningful for them, that brings them more satisfaction and joy
1: the economy is kind of putting uh, these, you know, younger people at home. Uh, David, have you ever lived at home after school? Did you, was that an assumed thing? Do a lot of your friends do that?
2: So it's not an assumed thing. I think that people, when they, when they finish college, you're going to see what kind of opportunities they have, and then they're going to make a decision based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I actually moved right to Philadelphia like a week after I graduated. I was given an opportunity to work with a startup with Scrimnia, actually, when they first started. Uh, it's a long story how I came to become my project, but um, <laughs> I was hired by them when I, when I left college and I moved right to Philly for that summer. As soon as that summer was over, I was there for like a, a summer contract, like a three-month contract. As soon as it was over, um, I actually did go back home and lived with my parents for about a year and saved up money and then i she just moved into new york city in october now that i have money saved up and i really do think i did it the right way cuz now i feel a lot more comfortable financially you know i love my parents i love my family but i did not want to move back home Rick, but, what,
1: do you, what do you think about this? Is yeah, so, uh,
0: yeah, this is great because, you know, David's, ex, 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 again, uh, not to say you, your specific instance fits a profile, but it kind of does. <laughs> um, it's know, typical. I, it's a little but, typical. Yes, yeah, well, especially among you know, so what's becoming really normative now is for um, college graduates to come home for a spell just to regroup. To figure out, you know, to not just take, say, the first job that comes along, but spend some time searching uh, to to take a little time out, again, to regroup, to figure out what you want, to play the market a little bit so that that as you're moving into work and through uh, multiple work positions, you're you know, again, kind of making more strategic choices about about what you're doing and and where it's all going. So it's become pretty normal to to do that. You know, Christine, you mentioned the economy, and and, and that is another big factor here. On the one hand, the economy has not suddenly created a slower course. I mean, what the economy has done and the, the economic recession has done is it's really just heightened a set of patterns that That have been been in the works for a while now. I think it's left young people and their families really much more acutely aware of economic strain. It's changed the kind of options that so many young people and their families have in front of them. What parents might have expected to say provide to their young adult might suddenly have changed or the the kind of options young people again have in front of them might have changed. But I think living at home has become in part more permissible because of the economy, because people can kind of point to something out there to say, you know, because things are really crummy on the outside, I'm making a decision to stay at home. And, you know, there's still a lot of shame around living at home in our society. But I think the economy becomes a kind of a a safe thing to point to. And. And what our work is showing is that living at home can be a really smart economic decision, you know, if it allows people to be in school or to take apprenticeships or internships or if it allows them, as David was saying, to save some money so that you have a stronger launch when you do go. Living at home keeps a whole lot of young people out of poverty. And again, from our vantage point, that's a great thing.
1: Right. In the book, you said 18, between the ages of 18 and I think it was 20, Three, Four. 24, 50% of them are, are living at home?
0: Yeah. The thing about living at home, it's really important to keep in mind, you know, some parents freak out about, <laughs> about this. Right. And but, your
1: book is kind of about, you know, calm down. It's actually it quite is. a tra- trend. And it's the parents that you're writing for, Rick, right? Because they don't seem to be so upset with these well, economic decisions. Yeah. We're not
0: just writing for, for parents, of course. We're writing to young people and to educators and all, all kinds of audiences, I think, who who are just kind of interested and affected by what's going on in this period. But, you know, to the living at home point, uh, so much of this action sorts itself out by the late 20s. The, the highest proportions, of course, come on the early end, the 18 to 24. And they and they march downward pretty seriously um, as you move through the late 20s and into the early 30s. The other thing to remember about living at home is if you're talking about, quote, kids who are, you know, uh, well into their 30s and beyond their 30s, uh, quote, kids who are living at home, you know, often it's more about the parent than it is <laughs> about the kid. Right. We're, we're quick to assume that there's something dysfunctional about that kid. But so often it's also uh, for the parents. This is especially true you know, in families where there's been divorce. Um, and young people, especially with moms, feel... You know, a, a sense that of obligation to staying there or a desire to stay there, to protect, to be available. You know, I think there are all kinds of reasons in families that prompt young people to stay at home or to come back later. And, it, and I guess the, the main point is that often it's not just about the kid.
1: Oh, interesting. David, I, what, what do you think about that?
0: I mean, I see a lot of students and a lot of people
2: that graduate college, they end up going home because they don't have a job um, and they, they don't really have many other options. At the same time, I've seen other ones who have jobs and just don't want to live at home and they move. Uh, I went to school upstate New York. A lot of people wanted to come down to live in in New York City, so they would move down. Uh, One of my roommates now, you know, he doesn't have much saved up and he's he's working a lot while he's here. Um, And it makes it a little bit more difficult because he doesn't have that cushion where he stayed home for a while and saved up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think there's all different kinds of reasons. For me, it was financial. I, I, I could see the value saving up that money first and creating that cushion for myself. I actually was working while I was living home, which I didn't mention before. I was working remotely on scribnia with my partner. So I, I was bringing in an income and I, I was able to save on rent and food and all, the, all that stuff that I didn't have to spend money on um, when I was home. But I did actually also contribute financially and I would give my parents money for uh, food and for certain things so that I, I could start paying my own way. Um, I would mm-hmm. start paying my cell phone bills. I would start paying things that I uh, always had paid for while I was at college, anything I could start taking on myself, I would do that.
0: Yeah, um, that, that's great. Also, very typical of what's happening in this period. And you know, David mentioned, well, a couple of things. I mean, just friends kind of waiting it out to, to get a job, a job, not even the right job. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, it does take longer today to find jobs that – that allow you to live independently and, you know, even in for later to raise a family on. And it takes more resources to get launched today, um, especially when you add in the costs of college, but also layering in the, the higher cost of housing and uh, cost of living more generally, especially in major urban environments of the kind that you, you all are, are talking about. That's just really important for uh, older generations to keep in mind. I mean, the world is not the same as it was when they became adults.
1: It just amazes me, David, that you and your peer group, some of them anyway, can get along with their parents. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you can live at home and everybody's okay with that. There seems to be a different kind of parent than in generations past.
2: I mean, you know, in all these generational discussions, and I have it a lot because of everything I'm involved in with U30 Pro, uh, we discuss these things a lot amongst ourselves. And, you know, I really think it's important to realize that yeah, generations can be different, but it's more of a result of you know, the environment and the world around us than who we are. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think people, regardless of when we were born, you know, we're still people. If other generations
0: were in the same exact position as us, I'm uh,
2: willing to bet that you would see very
0: similar trends. David, you've you've made our point exactly. I mean, you know, again, the a major impetus for writing the book was was to kind of stop pointing fingers at young people and instead to kind of get a much clearer and more nuanced sense of how the world around us has changed and and why it is we. We can't simply take old models of life and try to make them work in in today's world when today's world has done, you know, in about face relative to just a couple decades ago. Parents can't give young people advice based on the world that they knew. They we have to give young people advice based on the world that now is. And it's a place where we just can get so hung up as older generations just need to somehow believe that they were different. And somehow you need to believe that you know, they did it the right way. And, mm-hmm. and if only young people today did it that way, they'd be better yeah. off. The, the worst thing we can do is give give young people advice based on uh, on a model of life that just uh, no longer exists.
1: I almost feel like they don't need any advice. They're, they're so smart and they're so savvy. And they, they <laughs> uh, if up, only that were true. If <laughs> only that
2: were true, right? But
1: what about days of old when a multi-generational house was a normal thing. Is this different from that? You
0: no, know, so, Christine, that's such a great point. Yeah. So we say, you know, this obsession with this kind of quick start lockstep life is something that really emerged after World War II. We do young people a disservice when we, when we again, try to evaluate them using benchmarks that That are out of date. We're kind of trapped in the middle of the last century. Mid century, (laughs) yeah. It's it's kind of like
1: the 1950s. Exactly,
0: and and in the decade immediately thereafter. I mean, you know, uh, economic opportunities were ample. You know, uh, higher education was still largely reserved for the elite. There were, um, there were places to hook uh, young people in who weren't college-bound in, into the economy, into productive work, and the social norms at the time, right? I mean, think about living at home as a simple example. It would have been horrifying to horrifying. live at home right. <laughs> at that time in life, at that time in history. And so I think that it's so important that we cast our lenses back before World War II because it's then that you see that so much of what young people are now struggling with they, have, they almost have more in common with their peers who are uh, moving into adulthood in the early part of a century, I mean, over 100 years ago, than they do with their uh, most immediate peers just a, a decade or two ago. And, and the living at home point is a great example of that. Rates of living at home with parents and with extended family members were much higher in the decades before World War II than they are now.
1: Right. They've, it's strayed away from that. And we're actually thinking about not downsizing our houses, but actually getting bigger ones so we can house parents, you mm-hmm. know, because we're sandwiched in between parents and kids now. And it used to be that you, as your kids got to be 18, they left and, you know, went for college. And I'm thinking, you know what I said to my husband the other day, I, I think we might think about a bigger house. After I read your book,
0: actually.
1: Oh, great. He's going to pin
0: it on me. (laughs) Yeah, he is going to pin it on you.
1: Because I I read your book, and I do a lot of generational research. And I've just been watching the trends as you've been watching the trends. And I just think, well, you know what, this house really isn't big enough for four adults. It's great, you know, for maybe kids, maybe some teenage years, but an actual adult. I mean, David, did you feel like it was... Like a teenager when you were at home? Or did you feel like you were another adult living in the house?
2: I definitely felt like I was another adult living in the house. But our house definitely wasn't very big. So we were definitely kind of on top of each other. I'd kind of be uh, stuck in my room.
1: right working
2: on your laptop yeah my desk would be in my room my bed would be in my room my friend my friends who would come over we'd hang out in my room and you know if we wanted to go to the kitchen i'd have to explain my day to my mother so (laughs) (laughs) it it definitely starts to weigh on you and that's why after a year i was like all right i'm moving out and you know my parents would have loved for me to stay longer like they love having me there and close I don't know if it's as much the size of a house that matters as much as just the concept that you kind of need
0: to separate and live on your own and start fending for yourself. It's important to recognize, as you're both noting, that family relationships have changed. You know, the relationship between parents and kids is different to today than it once was. And, and most of the time, it's, it's closer and more connected. New kinds of kids don't just come about under the, out of the blue, right? I mean, they're produced by new kinds of parents. Um, who have actively uh, wanted to establish a different kind of relationship with their kids. And David's point is that his parents also quite liked having him there, or at least you... Right, and did. I find that a lot, of, a lot of
1: parents of older
0: kids
1: love having them
0: home. We focus so much on what kids get from parents, and usually the public conversation is about what kids take from parents, right? right. <laughs> um, but, but we have to also recognize the fact that, young people uh, also give something to their parents. It might not be financial. We're quick to focus on what kids take financially, but we are, we're not as often focused on what kids are also providing to parents in, in, in emotionally and in, in other domains. And I think it gets back to your point, Christine, about the implications of this for later for aging. Do these kind of closer and more connected relationships now between young people and their parents mean that these young people will also want to take care of their parents, more direct care of their parents when their parents become old. And this is a crystal ball question, but I think um, it's an important one in that young people today may may be receiving a lot of support from their parents, but it may really pay off for parents uh, many decades down the road.
1: Let's turn to a more serious note. The fear of the college loan, investing in college, is a good idea but there are some dark sides to this equation and and one of them is predatory lending it would be more towards what you would call the treaders the kids who may be looking for a professional level job not going to college looking into maybe going to a remote online college mm-hmm. or a community wow. college and there are forces at work that try to get them to loan money for educations that they may not finish and probably won't finish. But you talk about what's a good investment and what isn't a good investment. How are these kids going to know when the college debt isn't a good investment?
0: Right. So I, I think you're absolutely right, Christine, in, in pointing to some of these oh, almost boutique kinds of schools, art schools, uh, chef schools, and then, of course, the explosion in online de- degree getting. That's made the calculation even more complicated. I I have heard a good bit about the predatory nature of some of those institutions. I think you're you're right. They're preying on the kids who are, in a way, most vulnerable. They're probably uh, not seeking to attract kids who would have gone into top-tier public institutions or Ivy Leagues. They're not seeking to go after kids who seem well-positioned for four-year degrees. They're going after other pockets of, of young people. And there is a kind of desperation, it seems, among young people in that group because they don't know where else to go and if they think they're not well-positioned to get into well-known or, or sure-thing schools, they're exploring other options. They've heard this message, college is the way to a better life. And they start to think a college degree will pay at all costs. And it doesn't. A college degree, as we say in the book, pays well if you finish. And that's where we, where we see lots of striking out, right? Where uh, young people are stepping up, they're giving it a shot, but they're failing uh, miserably. And if they've taken out debt but then don't have the degree in hand that gives them access to the kind of position on the job market that'll help them pay it off. They're in big trouble. They're also in trouble if they take out debt, that's not in line with their potential earnings. And this is a a place where there's a connect to the, the kind of schools you're talking about. If you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to be a social worker, you don't take out $80,000 in loans because it will be impossible for you to pay it off. The amount of debt that you take out, has to be in line with your potential earnings when you get out. And that's a place where many young people are, are falling down hard.
1: David, did you take out any college loans, if I may ask?
0: I am one of the very few
2: fortunate ones. My parents were actually able to support me through college. I did have some money that I've earned throughout my life that contributed to it, but it certainly wasn't enough to cover it. Pretty much the deal for me was if I went to a, a state school, that would be a lot cheaper then my parents would pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, And if I didn't, then I would have to pay for it if I went to a private school. So it made that decision very easy for me. Oh, really? It (laughs) wasn't
1: disappointing you didn't have your eyes set on like some sort of boutique private school? or
2: I mean, I checked out a bunch of private schools, but the option of not having to pay student loans definitely outweighed this need for a private school the SUNY schools are pretty popular and I knew a lot of people who went to SUNY schools or that were going to SUNY schools and I knew there were really good ones. So I pretty much just applied to all the best ones and this, I pretty much only ended up applying to state schools because I just kind of took a look at the whole situation and thought that's what would be best. And I'm very happy that I did that.
0: David's a great example again of a key point we're making in the book. You know, we say sometimes the Corolla Is just as good as the Mercedes. (laughs) It gets you where you want to go. It gets you where you want to go. It's a smarter economic decision. David, the kind of decision making that your process you're talking about with your parents and, and considering the alternatives is exactly what we're saying is a smart thing to do. I mean, sometimes a cheaper alternative that's maybe one notch or even two notches down on the on the prestige ladder will not make a meaningful difference in the quality of your life later on. And it's so important to, to keep in mind that we shouldn't have this mentality that we should go after the highest priced or the most known institution at all costs. And in fact, you know, again, it's this fear of debt. The public has this sense somehow that young people today are reckless in their spending. And we find quite the opposite, that there's a kind of fear of debt, that young people actually don't want to be irresponsible. And we're worrying, especially in this economy, that young people and their families will underinvest in themselves today because they are worried about debt. Some college debt can be good as long as it's smart. David's really just helped make that point. I was going to say, I definitely have a
2: lot of friends who are still paying off Student loans and who will continue to pay off student loans for a long time. You know, I was very fortunate in that I had this option. Many students don't have that option. And then, you know, at the same time, I know a lot of students who went to these big private schools and uh, took big loans and spent a ton of money on it. And, you know, some of them hated it, ended up leaving. Some of them Graduated and really regretted taking that leap. Other ones mm-hmm. loved it. You know, it's really, it depends who it is. It depends what school it is. This is what you make of it. You can go to a, a small state school and you can go to a big popular private school, and it's just what you make of it. We speak a lot about the quality of college education in general in Pretty Pro. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, college isn't even about. It Maybe where it starts off is it's about education and you know going to the best place. But when you leave, it's really just about the experience you had there. It teaches you how to live life on your own, it teaches you how to be independent. Um, as far as the actual education, most students think that they really don't learn much. They think that the real way that they're going to learn anything that's going to be valuable in life is just through experience. And so they take much more out of the experience they get in college than the actual education or the prestige of it. I think a lot of it is people see these big investment bankers who like the only way you can get into these kind of jobs where you're making a ton of money is with an awesome you know, Harvard degree or something like that. And so I think a lot of these big success stories are you see students who are making a lot of money as a result of what seems to be strictly where they went to college. is something that um, influences students before they're really able to understand uh, the point of going to college.
0: And that may be less about what you learn in college, as you said, but more about the kinds of networks you get uh, hooked up in and the kinds of opportunities that come from them later on. Right. Right.
1: And I I haven't seen any rubric or measurement out there about that. I do see, you know, the numbers of earnings of Harvard grads as opposed to University of Pittsburgh, where I went, grads, but they don't take into consideration the family networks that were already existent. Now, David, do you feel that people your age are talking a lot about graduate degrees and, and their careers? Absolutely.
2: Everyone's talking about it. It's definitely something that everyone is curious about. Maybe they're not sure if they need to do it or not. I mean, of course, there are those careers where you have to do it, you know, for some teachers or some accounting majors and things like that. You have to go to graduate school. And so it makes it very easy. The thing with a lot of graduate schools is, once you go there, it's pretty much like in stone. All right, that's what you're doing for the rest of your life. Um, I have a friend who's uh, who who went to school for chemistry, and he wants to be a chemist. But he knows if he has he knows if he wants to really pursue this career, he has to go to graduate school first. I mean, if he ends up doing it, you're like that's what he's doing, and it, you know, he has to decide whether or not that's what he wants to do for the rest of his life now, and it makes it very difficult that's mm-hmm. yeah, so, a so heavy day.
1: decision. That seems
2: pretty heavy. You know? <laughs> it, you know, it's tough. If you're going to invest that much time and money into something like that, you really have to be confident that that's what you want to do.
1: It is definitely a decision to make later in life. And average age of graduate students is rising, right, Rick?
0: It is, yeah. So you know, you mentioned the economy before. What we've seen on college campuses across the nation is that since the economy uh, started to go sour, we've seen enrollment go up both at the undergraduate level and especially in graduate programs. That, that reflects the, the kinds of decisions that you know, that David's talking about, about whether having a degree, uh, undergraduate or graduate, will give you an edge on the market later. Maybe it provides a moment to kind of rethink your career and where you're going. But David's other point about his friend, the chemist, <laughs> is, um, yeah. is also a great example of how... Um, how heavy these decisions can seem for young people. That is, that young people who are in relatively good positions and have, you know, have multiple pathways they might go down, feel a heaviness about locking in because it necessarily means you have to let go for now anyway uh, you know the, the other things you might otherwise do you know th- that's very real for young people today i think especially as they're exploring what they might like to be or what they might like to do the locking in can be hard for those who uh, who seem to have ample ample options
1: it's a heavy decision to kind of weigh and it careers don't go the same way that they used to go this you were always a log cutter or you were always a plumber or you were all, you were an IBM man remember that image mm-hmm. We don't have those types of jobs anymore. You don't get to have a career that's in the same company anymore. You know, ties have changed, and hiring managers look at resumes and they see ten years at the same company. It can actually hurt you. Why aren't you out there trying different things? Why aren't you out there learning? Why are you stagnating for ten years at one company? I
2: mean, we we spoke about this a lot too. It's it's interesting. I think it differs from person to person. Some people feel a little bit more comfortable in the structured environment where they know where they're going. Um, for me, I get bored very quickly. Uh, that's why I love being an entrepreneur and running my own business because every day is different. working for a company doing the same thing for a long time or even you know even if you're working your way up the ladder, you know it's hard to say. If you're not constantly being motivated and you're not constantly being you know thinking creatively and doing something new, it's something that can weigh on you pretty quick. And I, I think that's definitely something that will change as we grow and, um, you know, we start building families and we have more bills to pay and, you know, structure and having a steady uh, source of income, it becomes a lot more important. Um, but right now we just have the world ahead of us, right? For me personally, staying on one thing for too long almost seems like it's a disservice to
0: myself. You know, you mentioned the issue of lifetime jobs. Those are a thing of the past for all of us, not just young people. So we're back to the neat, tidy package problem I talked about earlier. We all have to recognize that the kind of movement we're seeing among young people through jobs, the shorter duration of time spent in jobs, is something that's a reality for everybody now, not just young people. And It's important to keep that in mind. You know, In the book, we talk about job hopping and job shopping. The job hopping is is often among those who you know, are without college or professional degrees. They're moving from job to job for very little in terms of financial incentives, sometimes you know, Fifteen cents or twenty cents more an hour for yeah. these young people is enough for them to make a job to a different a different job. The job shopping you know much more along the lines of what David is talking about you know we 're saying it's a smart professional strategy basically you know, these are people who are looking to be satisfied in their work they 're looking to have work that's sort of providing some special skill or experience that's going to help them over the long haul. And they'll jump to another position when the time comes for them to go and to learn something new. These are people who want meaning and they also want some balance uh, between work and and life. And there are also people, like David said, who who are doing contingent work or contract work. This isn't about loyalty. It's really about the fact that the whole model of work is, again, changing for for everybody.
1: David mentioned marriage and family, and you talk about in the book how this is getting put off.
0: On the marriage and family front, it's totally different now. I mean, what we show is that among the people who are doing well, uh, marriage and parenting are not abandoned, but they are delayed. And the sense among young people today is that you... You know, you have to be an adult to get married. That's that's different from just a couple decades ago right. where people might have partnered very early and then they became adult together. There's me time. That comes before we time, as we say in the book. And, and the me time is important in the sense that, you know, as long as young people are building skills, credentials, experiences that are, are bringing meaning to their life, that help them on, on a forward path and intentional delay of marriage and parenting are, are good things. I mean, if you've taken time to figure out what you want and need in a partner, if you have time together as a couple before kids arrive, those things mean stronger marriages and better parenting down the road. No question.
1: Cohabitation rates are different now. And we can't know for a little while yet what that's going to do in terms of long-term marriages. And I think it's super smart. I think that could only lead to longer marriages and deeper relationships. Time will tell.
0: Yeah. You know, so what we're seeing is that with each graduating high school senior cohort, the majority of young people now say they expect to cohabit at some point. I mean it's just it's just part of the course. Uh, what we show in the book is that cohabitation starts to mean something different if you're kind of middle class and you have a college education um, than if you're sort of working class or, or from a poorer family and and you don't have college among the middle class and those with higher higher ed. Uh, cohabitation becomes a kind of trial run for marriage and there's growing acceptability around living together. it doesn't involve kids and it often does end in marriage for those groups. For kids from working class and poor backgrounds and those without college, it's different. We call it you know, serial cohabitation. Often they move from one cohabiting relationship to another. Often children do emerge along the way, and usually these don't end in marriage. And so the experience of cohabitation is just inherently different depending on, on your background and depending on, on a college degree.
1: Yeah, and the book covers it all very well, and it makes it easy to understand for anybody of any generation so not quite adults by richard setterson and barbara ray why 20 somethings are choosing a slower path to adulthood and why it's good for everyone and today we had a young entrepreneur david spinks a founder of blog thank you very much rick and david
0: thank you thank you nice to talk david too yeah pleasure
1: thank you very much purple car park theme music and announcements provided by the matthew show critically acclaimed original and independent music please check it out at thematthewshow.com
0: the doors stay open but the seats stay filled the lid is child proof but the people stay filled the price has gone up for the prison to fill. the doors are wide open but the church stays filled